Womanjika. My name is Larry Walsh, and I'm an elder of the Tunnarong people and the Kulin Nations. And we acknowledge we are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Wurrung people, and the Bumwurrung people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors, and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Islander communities that live in the Western suburbs. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre, platforming artists, creatives and stories in Melbourne's West and beyond. Welcome to FCAC Radio. My name is Bigwa. In this episode, I had the delight of speaking with Vietnamese-Australian writer for Cabramatta, Stephen Pam, a writer of essay and short story whose work has appeared in Menjin and Overland, to name a few. Stephen was a contributor for FCAC Writes, a new series of online literary work curated by me. We speak about their piece called Life Drawing, Writing in Isolation, and what he's doing to keep creative and well. So when I'm speaking or talking about my writing, I generally like to introduce myself as a Vietnamese-Australian writer from Cabramatta. I find it really important to introduce myself by place and ethnicity because I guess like from my experience, people do that anyway. And it's just good to like add that clarification, you know, like the whole like, oh, where are you from sort of thing. And I just want to get that off the record so that you can know exactly where I'm from and more or less what I'm about. Yeah, I I like that you said it like that. I, I definitely see what you're saying there. Can you tell me about Cabramatta? I I don't know much about it. I've never been. For other listeners who haven't either, what's Cabramatta? Where is it? What is it like? Well, Cabramatta is a suburb in um, Sydney's west, uh, bordering on southwest. Uh, currently, a coronavirus hotspot as a part of uh, Fairfield uh, local government area. So banned from Queensland. Very honourable prestigious honor thing. Um, But Cabramatta is, uh, I don't know the population and the demographics necessarily in terms of like rough numbers, but um, I think it's 80% residents from Asian backgrounds, including uh, Vietnamese, Chinese, Cambodian, uh, Thai, and Laotian descent. So yeah, like I think that is probably one of the most significant things about Cabramatta is that it is, yeah, 80% Asian. And um, I guess in the 90s, it had a bit of a, well, the media had a bit of a field day when it came to Cabramatta because it was very juicy fodder because um, there was this whole thing about like uh, Cabramatta being this huge uh, heroin hotspot. And so people would travel from all over to buy heroin from Cabramatta. And um, yeah, I guess like what, is important to know about Cabramatta is that it's kind of this almost like this very Australian story of migrants come to Australia, white people hate the migrants, migrants have some kind of crime attached to them as if that crime never existed in Australia before said migrants and then migrants sort of rehabilitate themselves and you know go through this PR cleanup and so now Cabramatta is known as a place of good food, 
uh, honorable people and, you know, uh, cheap things. And yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> you mentioned, um, you know, as I, as I was expressing to you um, about kind of um, wanting to know a bit of, about Cabramatta for someone who grew up in the southeast of Melbourne, mm. you compared it to Springvale. And then I was like, okay, I know what we're talking about. So that was awesome. Mm. I'm really curious. You're, you're a guest here on the podcast mm-hmm. um, because you were a contributor to FCAC Rights. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a lot of your work um, and I think you're a prolific writer and there's, I, I really like the the satire and the irony and the, I think there's a real great clarity in your work. And so what it, what has it been like for you? There's a pandemic, you know, we've seen kind of the fallouts of that where there hasn't been a real health response really. Mm. What has it been like for you as a writer just as a person, are you wanting to write about this time? Are you writing about it? That's, that is a very big question, and thank you for the kind words. With regards to the current um, coronavirus pandemic, it's kind of funny because I guess everyone's, at least a lot of the people that I'm speaking to are either caught in this sort of cycle of like overwork where like, this whole thing about being able to work from home sort of turns your home into an office and you get heaps of like sort of like unpaid overtime because you're just working longer because you don't have to commute back home and stuff. So like there's that. And then there's other people who just can't find any motivation to do anything because, you know, there's the big word of like uncertainty and stuff. But it's just like it's a huge shift in a really short amount of time and everyone's just like really I don't know it it feels like there are people being extremely productive and like exploited and there are other people who have been so used to their pre-covid rhythms that now they are they just feel guilty for doing nothing or not being able to find the motivation to you know keep on going on um For me, myself, I am quite happy to do nothing at the moment. I actually love when my shifts get cut. Like, I just celebrate. Like, it's fine. I mean, I guess the money stuff is not good. But, like, I'm quite happy to, I guess, just do nothing. But I find it quite challenging to write about coronavirus just because it feels like every single topic that could be had or written about, like, coronavirus, every single take has already been taken. So, yeah, I don't know if I physically feel any kind of need to write about COVID at the moment. Yeah, like you mentioned sort of um, ideas of like satire and irony, and I just feel like I don't know if we're in a stage where we can be ironic about COVID just yet. I feel like I would like to see a bit more sincere anxiety around it, as I've mentioned to you earlier. But, um, yeah, yeah. Stephen, what what are you doing with that reclaimed time? I think it's reclaimed time. Let's see. I I got into video games for a really long time. Well, not a long time, but like an extensive amount of time. And then I realized like um, that video games are in fact a waste of time. And it's fine. It's fine. But it's fine. <laughs> I'm trying to spend that time 
doing things that I will appreciate the next day or that give me a sense of fulfillment that, you know, just refreshing social media feeds or playing video games kind of doesn't. So yeah, just, you might notice that I haven't mentioned writing in that. Uh, that's quite intentional, but um, at the moment I'm just, I guess most of my time is spent drawing or eating really. I think important tasks, important tasks. <laughs> Only indeed. the important things. <laughs> Tell me about life drawing. Hmm. What, what what are you exploring in that? And and perhaps even before we go there, what? How long have you been drawing? I've been drawing for about a year now, and I guess the way that you can uh, you had originally commissioned the piece, it was like. Let's talk about how relationships have and our sort of ways of being have changed uh, during a time of pandemic and uncertainty and stuff. And I was like, yeah, cool, totally on board. And then I tried like a couple of, I don't know, like a, a couple of dozen drafts trying to write about sort of like how do we relate to each other and all of that stuff. But um, it just wasn't clicking. It didn't make sense to me. Like it just didn't gel um, what I was trying to write about. And so I guess like at the time that I was writing it, I had several shifts cut because of COVID because I'm a casual worker at a fast food retailer who I will not name. So I had a bunch of my shifts cut and I I was actually okay with it, even though like, you know, the money question is like very important because, you know, I do need money to eat and have shelter and stuff like that. But um, I was spending a lot of my time not really worrying about work and just like drawing instead because it's... I don't know. I'm not really under any pretense that it's going to be like work and it's just fun. You know, like it's, it's, it's okay to have fun and just do things that you enjoy or like whatever. And so I just wanted to explore. Um, also the fact that I had started my fast food job, um, around the same time that I started drawing. So a year ago. Um, so I just wanted to just literally just slap those two things together and be like, I love drawing and work sucks and just see what happened. Yeah, it was, um, I really enjoyed um, reading it and as of others who who have as well. There's a part in there where I'm going to read a short um, um, part of it. It goes, I don't hold any illusions about drawing being anything more than a hobby. A hobby though. It's not an art. I'm just studying and trying to build good habits. Realism for me is not a goal, but a method. If I can make a realistic detailed drawing that says to me that I've finally understood its smaller composite shapes, that I can transfer its existence onto a flat piece of paper, that I truly believe it exists, invisible, on the page, and I'm only tracing its contours. Where was your mind at when you were writing that? This is a difficult question to answer because literally exactly, I'm just writing exactly what I think. <laughs> mm. um, right. <laughs> That is an awesome response. I mean, um, if for me, the idea of writing is, well, like we can talk about, um, we can have another conversation about irony and satire and all of that. But like, if I don't mean what I write, then I wouldn't write it any other way. But like, if we want to be a bit more poetic or metaphysical about it. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess like there's this whole thing of like, there's on Instagram, and stuff, there's like all these ideas of like hustle culture and like, you know, 
sleep is the cousin of death and like, what are you doing? Why are you refreshing your feeds? Get back to work, you know, um, hustle in your 20s, work in your 30s, retire in your 40s and all this stuff about being productive all the time and like trying to accumulate as much wealth and overwork as possible in the hopes that it will pay off um, instantaneously. And I think like for me, writing about how laborious, difficult, and rewarding drawing has been, even though I'm ve- I'm not fantastic at it, and I don't really want to monetize it or make a career out of it. It's just something that's fun for me. Like I think that's something that I wouldn't say is radical, but it's quite counter to, for example, like my mom, who you know she saw me drawing, she walked in on me drawing and she was like, oh, why don't you become an architect? You know, like you can draw for money. I'm like, I don't want to draw for money because when I draw for money, drawing will become work and I hate work. (laughs) So yeah, like that's hopefully a way of answering your question um, that I do just want to do things for fun and they don't have to mean anything. I definitely agree. I really agree with that um, in finding yeah, counter ways and um, different ways of relating to the things we do um, and things we enjoy yeah. and um, a hobby, right? Do you, do you find that same? I mean, how? what's your relationship? How has your relationship to sort of writing changed as you've become more prolific as a writer? Oh, my relationship to writing is, um, it's, it's interesting. I think for me or, or cre- creativity in general has been kind of about my own sustenance as a person mm-hmm. um, and my own, uh, I guess, exploring what ways I want to express myself and writing is a part of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, in terms of monetizing, that's not really, I suppose, what it's about for me, it's about um, the story, mm. all the things I'm thinking about, all the things I want to explore, mm-hmm. and just the doing and being in that space. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that I have a slightly different relationship in that, you know, I spent a lot of time being like, I love writing, it's how I express myself. I would gladly do it and I would do it for free if I could, you know, I would, you know, it's just because I do do it for free and stuff, but like, I feel like that sometimes feels at odds with taking it seriously as paid work. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so how does your relationship to writing change as you normalize it within yourself as something that should be paid because it is work, because it is labor intensive. And then how do you still find joy in that work? Does that make sense as a question? I I, I hear you. I hear you. And I think that balance is really delicate. Yeah, for sure. It's really, really super delicate. And I think um, each of us can, can see where it is for ourselves, Mm. but it's, it's very important that, um, writers of color are paid. paid Um, so I think, um, it's not negating that at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about it being a form of expression of, you know, joy. And then talking about it is labor intensive, right. Mm. 
Um, so I think even having that respect for, for, for the, for the, for the craft, for the process and, and for writers. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a delicate, it's a delicate balance. And I think it, um, I think you can also, it's not stagnant as well. I think that can change and move mm. and you can reassess. Mm. Um, I think that's possible. Yeah. I want to ask you also, uh, is, is there anything in particular in this time that you found concerning? Do you mean like in pandemic? In the, in the pandemic, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that you'd like to speak on? Uh, yeah. I mean the the expansion of the police state has been pretty uh pretty bad, pretty bad, I'd say. Um, obviously, with the sort of forced lockdown of the flats in um of the flats in North Melbourne and Flemington, and there were on Alfred Street, I think. Yep, yep, that was the last tower. Yep. Yeah, and that's in Melbourne and, you know, sort of that being enforced and this wider state, I mean, uh, Victoria sort of like enforced lockdown of like um, like enforced by not only cops who are heavy, heavily militarised but also um, uh, the actual army itself like enforcing these sort of restrictions is very alarming, like <laughs> extremely alarming and sort of like... In Sydney, using coronavirus as a cover for the expansion of the police state as well, just in other ways, we don't have necessarily a statewide lockdown at the moment, but um, just recently the Black Lives Matter protests were shut down by the cops. Um, And sort of uh, the organisers were arrested like five minutes before the protest was like supposed to begin. And it's just, it's really quite unsettling to see how quickly the police state has just, you know, it's so rapidly evolved and people are just like, yeah, you know, coronavirus, it's, it's for safety. And it's just like, it's really quite concerning how disasters and emergencies set this precedent for like expanding state powers that never quite go back to the way they were because it's always going to be a new emergency, you know? Um, so I'm quite scared of that. <laughs> But I know that I'm not at the forefront of sort of uh, profiling by the state. Policing is definitely not healthcare. It's not <laughs> yeah. a healthcare response. Mm. I'm curious to ask you this as well. Mm. For those who are highly racialized people, mm. right? What do you think that experience impacts the ability to imagine? Or does it impact what they imagine? How does being racialized... creatives, highly Mm. racialized people. Yeah. Black people, people of colour, Indigenous people. Yeah. Um, What what do you think that experience, uh, how does that impact the ability to imagine, to create, to write, or what they write about? I guess I can't speak to the experiences of all sort of um, racialized peoples. I think that on a very, you know, um, just on a very basic level, like access to the creative industries is, you know, quite limited for racialized peoples. And so like without that proliferation of racialized peoples in sort of like leading public facing sort of like um, uh, public uh, roles and stuff like without those role models, like, you know, uh, young people can't necessarily imagine themselves 
in those roles and don't see it as realistic for themselves. They can't imagine that for themselves. And on an even more practical level, the fact that they're, the fact that when you are racialized, you feel like you are the first, if not second or third, to like be breaking into an industry or whatever. And it's just, it's tough because as much as these creative industries are very romantic, they're also extremely exploitative regardless of the good intentions and sometimes because of the good intentions of the white people that sort of um, uh, in control of these structures, you know, like we talk a lot about racism as a structure or racism as, you know, um, uh, some sort of big force that's out of the control of individuals. And to some extent that's true, but at the same time, structures are also staffed and made up of individuals. And so it's just, it's difficult. Um, and also at the same time, just because you don't have recognition or you have trouble accessing those creative industries, I don't think that actually impacts your imagination itself. Because like, I don't know, like for me, I've found that I found a really profound sense of like shelter with sort of other creatives of color um, of having to make those spaces ourselves and not really knowing what to do, but not really being able to imagine where it's going to head. But that kind of feels freeing to not have it, to not have to follow a script or narrative and kind of not know what to do. Like, do you know what I mean? Like um, mm-hmm. just to feel it's, it's kind of freeing to not have that pressure of like, Oh, this is going to, you know, capital be a thing or whatever, like, and so, yeah, there's two answers that like, on the one hand, that a white dominated industry sort of limits your, your ability to imagine yourself within that industry. But on the other hand, it also frees you and lets you imagine alternatives to the current state away from those structures and industries. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Vietnamata. Hmm. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, yes. Tell us about that. What is the collection about? Where Where are you at with that collection at the moment? Vietnamata is a collection of nonfiction slash essays. Um, it's 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 in a place. It's in a place. Um, I finished the first draft a while ago, and I have to get back to revising it. Currently looking for a publisher just because my previous publisher, Brow Books, is currently in a state of, well, uncertainty. Yeah, it's basically just, it's not really about growing up in Cabramatta. It's more about the vibe of growing up in Cabramatta. Just like talking about the music that people I know enjoy, like, and talking about the same kinds of movies that they like, for example, The Fast and Furious and stuff like that, and why that means so much in Western Sydney. Talking about my uh, exploring my relationship to my mother. Um, she's a you know former refugee from Vietnam and has quite nationalistic, militaristic politics in theory, if you ask her, but in practice she's one of the most radical people just in terms of like, you know, when we first came to Australia, like, and they had a, they were renting a house with a granny flat. They just let this white family stay in the granny flat for free. I thought it was the other way around of like, 
the white people letting us stay in their house for free. But yeah, it was actually the other way around. And it's just this spirit of generosity that's quite at odds with a very yeah far-right alleged politics. Um, yeah, so I guess like Vietnamata is just an exploration of like what it's like to be in Cabramatta, but not in a romantic way, just in a very real way about the people and about me and how I feel about people. I can't, I can't wait to read it. Thank you. I can't wait to read it. That's awesome. I, I love books. I love reading. Ooh. What is a great book you've read recently or you've read in the past that has really stuck with you? I will always recommend Audrey Lord's Zami, A New Spelling of My Name and Autoethnography, I think, is the subtitle. Um, just, just stellar writing from Audrey Lord. And if you actually take some time to pick apart the sentences, it's basically an instruction manual on how to write well. Like, it's stellar. I'm also curious, who is someone or something you turn to when you're feeling unsure about your writing? That's a really good question. I guess I turn to Khalid Wasame's piece, uh, This Vast Conspiracy of Memory, uh, published in Mianjin Spring 2019. Um, and I turn to it because I guess like Khalid is uh, obviously a stellar writer, but I guess there's just a sort of like, his voice has this way of sort of... It's quite conversational and it's quite comfortable with me like meandering a little and sort of his the way that he writes he's just tracing the journey of the development of his thoughts on a piece um, and so it's just this sort of um, it's this really great balance between being comfortable and comfortable in your voice but uncertain in your ideas that I find really reassuring and it's something that I definitely aspire to. Um, so that's something that I like to read when I'm uncertain. That's awesome. Hmm. Um, I, I guess I wanted to ask, uh, I want to ask an additional question, but um, in terms of where, which you've kind of mentioned before, um, but where are you getting, where are you getting joy? Where are you getting support in this time? You, you mentioned a little bit about playing video games, but what, um, what, brings you, what brings you joy and happiness? What do you like to do? I would definitely discount video games because I think that video games for me have been a way of numbing my relationship to the world, sort of escaping my responsibilities to the world. Um, I have really long periods of like, I don't know, six to seven days where I do nothing but wake up, play video games, you know, eat one or two meals and go back to sleep. And it's quite bad. I don't reply to texts. I don't reply to emails. It's very bad. It's possibly addiction. Who even knows? Um, so I would definitely discount that as a source of joy. Um, for me, joy comes in, I guess, like uh, hanging out with my girlfriend. Um, yesterday, we made hash browns together. That was nice. The hash browns were okay. But we will do better next time, and that's fine. Um, I find joy in gardening. I find joy in holding my cat. <laughs> um, I find joy in drawing. I find joy in 
uh, going out and doing impulsive buys like yesterday. I went out and I bought a durian and it was a single fruit and it was $64. And I came home and it was like 10 o'clock and my mom was in bed. And I was like, hey, mom, I got this durian, but we can eat it in the morning. You know, I know that you have to sleep. And she was like, are you, are you kidding me? And then she got out of bed and she was like, I'm going to eat this durian. And so we ate that durian together, all $64 of it in one sitting. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, just like food, people, hobbies. Joy or oh joy. That is joyous. We've come to the conclusion of my questions. And I suppose this is a part if you had picked that line. Second shift, I had my first bad customer. Elderly lady, blue rings bordering her brown irises, who ordered six coffees for her friends. She asked for equal in a coffee. I asked a co-worker, who told me that we use a different brand, but to put in sweetener through the register. I repeated the order, but read sweetener out loud. The lady flared her nostrils, twisted her upper lip, and the fluorescent lights flashed in the blues of her eyes as she yelled, Butter? Who puts butter in coffee? Are you stupid? I said equal. We chugged through the rest of the transaction. Her shoulders relaxed and she leaned in and chirped, Thank you, lovely young man. When she and her friends left two hours later, all the rubbish was on the floor, Cups laying sideways, tan liquid pooling into the astroturf they were sitting over. As I mopped, I thought about Flannery O'Connor's women. They embodied a twisted kind of grace, wreaking emotional terrorism and patching it up with surface-level sweetness. In one of my favourite short stories, Everything That Rises Must Converge, Julian's mother, a white woman, offers a black child a penny in front of the child's mother. Under the guise of kindness, Julian's mother twists the knife of white supremacy that makes her charity possible in the first place. In Hilton Owls' word, it was an indirect way of calling the black mother the N-word. Did that elderly lady think that I had the memory of a goldfish? That she could cover up her abuse with a smile? More likely, like Julian's mother, she only wanted to fool herself. If anything went awry, she could console herself that she did all the right things, that she was innocent. If you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen and would like to follow his work, you can do so on his website, stephenpam.ws. That's stephenpam, spelt P-H-A-M, dot W-S. You can read life drawing at www.footscrayarts.com, as well as the rest of the featured writers. I'm Vigua. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening in to FCAC Radio, produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre and proudly supported by Maribyrnong City Council and City of Melbourne's COVID-19 Arts Grants. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently-run community arts organisation that supports over 550 artists annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit footscrayarts.com to find out more. 
We appreciate your support and generosity.